Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Paul, how are you? I'm good. How's your twins? <laughs> They're good. They just went down, but now my uh, six-year-old daughter is throwing a fit over Halloween candy. Um, so there might be there might be some feedback on that. And coming down here, it'll it'll pass. Yeah, that's right. Halloween can be rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did she get a yeah. good haul on her candy? She did. Yeah, that's the problem. Now got the reins on her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you have kids? I have three children. Yes, but my oldest is thirty-six. I have a son who's thirty-three, and then a daughter who is twenty-eight. Mm, good spacing. Got there. I'm not having to fight with them over Halloween candy. <laughs> no, that's true. You can make their own decision. <laughs> How you doing, Brad? Austin, good to see you. Good to be here. Was this a tough week for everybody? Yes. <laughs> in regard to the the reading or just oh, in no, regard- no, not that. <laughs> <laughs> On the reading, you know, yeah. I, I, I found that it was a little more difficult just because you know it's sort of the interplay between three big figures uh and their beliefs but you know it it kind of comparing their beliefs helped me get i think a fuller picture of what they were arguing about right. or disagreeing about so yeah it was it was tough but fruitful let's say good 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 matt and matt are both here matt von Schuch, how you doing Doing well. How about yourself? Oh, good. Uh, Matt, you recommended a book, and I actually didn't follow the link, uh, Jordan Wood. Has he done a new translation? He's working on a translation of various letters of Maximus, and he posted one. That was one he had posted online. Oh, okay. If I'm not mistaken, his books are just his... He may have just expanded on his dissertation. I don't know. Is that true, Matt? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think he just, I, I think it is just a dissertation. And Matt Welch is with us from his new home in South Carolina. Congratulations. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to hear you. I got, I was surprised <laughs> everybody gave me very fulsome answers this week. So. From Brian is with us. Where are you, Brian? My backyard. Okay. All right. You're always in some exotic location. <laughs> always in my backyard or <laughs> around, you know? Yeah. Just wherever they'll let you let you stay, huh? <laughs> As I go through this, I'm just telling you what my, I the perception or my reading of Maximus. If you'd like to say, wait a minute. This this has all sorts of implications. I don't mean to make this a hard and fast east-west difference, but just for the purposes of utility that we can kind of describe it that way. I think it is definitely, by the time we get to Protestantism, many of us here may identify as Protestant as over and against something else, but 
when we come to Luther, and this is maybe the way I could start this, that in the class we went from origin, and then I think what is a clear departure from origin with Augustine. And I put up the blog last week, but also in the lecture, I gave you 10, 10 differences between origin and Augustine. But of course, the big difference is that with Augustine, and I am in the back of my mind, keep wanting to say Augustine, which is perfectly acceptable, that he is rejecting point blank origin's notion of apocatastasis. Uh, even though there is an earlier portion of Augustine that, in which he's actually using apocatastasis. So you can actually pit Augustine against Augustine there. So if we, it, the way that I've set up the class, and we're, we're doing things very quickly, we're kind of doing the whole history of everything, that if the endpoint of Augustinian thought, I think, is, finds its end in, certainly in Martin Luther, on this subject, and you know, you could include John Calvin. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the philosophy of nominalism, which is not simply Protestant, it's Franciscan, William of Ockham. Some would say it's Duns Scotus, certainly William of Ockham. But the idea in nominalism is that we don't have access to the essence of who God is, or to, if you put it in philosophical terms, that we don't have access to the universals. And this is really the atmosphere in which Protestantism takes off. We're in a sharp contrast here. If Augustinian thought ends in Martin Luther, and Origenist thought ends in Maximus the Confessor, that he is picturing exactly the opposite, and that is the full identification between God and the world. And of course, that might be our objection to Maximus, is this full identification. So we're dealing with a, you know, Maximus's Christologic, I think, is just an outgrowth of Origen's Apocatastasis. But it's there in uh, Origen, or in Maximus's formula, but it's there in Ambiguous 7. The Word of God, very God, wills that the mystery of the Incarnation be actualized always and in all things. So this is the logic that he sees, not just in the life of Christ, but the life of Christ, the incarnation, is the logic of creation. The, what happens to Christ happens to a creation. Maximus explains it elsewhere. This is the great and hidden mystery. This is the blessed end for which all things were brought into existence. This is the divine purpose conceived before the beginning of beings. Here he's thinking of the Lamb crucified from the foundation of the world. And in defining it, we would say that this mystery is the preconceived goal for the sake of which everything exists, but which itself exists on account of nothing. And it was with a view to this end that God created the essences of things. Creation's purpose, that is, is found in the incarnation, in the lamb sacrifice before the foundation of the world. And my reading of this, this just sounds like Origen's 
principle that I think uh, Maximus is building upon, and that is that the end is in the beginning and the beginning is in the end. The incarnation is not simply the, an event in the middle of history, but it's the event from which creation flows. And so in the incarnation, you know, the thing that's taking place, the peculiar logic here that is not Greek, that goes beyond the Greek, is that, first of all, is lined up the differences between God and man. That is the big difference between deity and humanity that normally would be seen as an, a kind of unbridgeable gap. We could say, yeah, we could go through it, the seen, the unseen, the, the comprehensible, the incomprehensible, the passable, or the impassable, the passable, you know, all these differences. Well, well, those differences are combined uh, or bridged in Christ. They're brought together so that there is identity and, you know, do we want to qualify this word? But there is identity between the creator and, and creation. Uh, I think we, we do need to say some things about that, but I also think that I, I assume that Hart's departure is in this description of a full identity. And I can't, I, it's not that I've hit red hard on this. I'm just assuming that Hart is doing what everybody else is doing over and against somebody like Jordan Daniel Wood, who is, is just saying, oh, that Maximus doesn't mean this is a metaphor. He's not qualifying this. He's just saying that, that we become God and God becomes man. He just means what he says. Or Matt, is that was that your understanding, or have you pursued that? I haven't seen found it anywhere fully laid out. I've just seen snippets and references to the dispute on the issue, so I'm not really sure I fully understand it. But I think that's right. I mean, I think, I mean, at least my understanding is that Hart still wants to, or Hart wants to, doesn't want to do away with analogy like uh, 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 with the idea of analogy and the concept of analogy and and push incarnation into the divinity into the divine divine trinity i i th so i think that's the difference although i i it, it, the 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 argument is a little over my head so i'm not really sure i get it or i've even seen it all worked out or or laid out I'm just guessing that's what it is. It, it almost has to be that because uh, if you want to read Maximus and appreciate him and not go with this idea of complete identity, and, and by the way, again, I think this is like with origin. I think that in other words, what we usually do, we want to fit people to our own understanding. To, to get at the comparison here, you know, People have said to Jordan Wood, well, this sounds like Hegel. I don't think it is. I don't think it is Hegelian, but I pro that probably gets at what somebody like Hart would object to, that there is this, this full focus on, first of all, history, uh, full focus on a complete identity. Now, having said that, I also think that Maximus does qualify this in certain ways, and that is he's going to talk about a difference in being God by nature and God by in, in the process of deification. But I'll come back to that. 
He says this mystery is obvious, obviously the ineffable and incomprehensible union according to hypostasis of divinity and humanity. And I think this idea of hypostasis, the hypostatic union in the person of Christ is key. That is that in Christ, these two things that cannot be brought together are brought together. You know, Maximus is going to say, yes, there's two natures. Yes, there's two wills. Yes, there's two modes of action. But in the person of Christ, these two in the person are not separate. They're one. That's the peculiar logic that we're dealing with here. The union brings humanity into perfect identity in every way with divinity through the principle of the hypostasis. And from both humanity and divinity, it completes the single composite hypostasis without creating any diminishment due to the essential differences of the natures. He's saying, yes, there's two natures, but in the person of Christ, these two natures are brought together. And so according to Maximus, this is true also of the Christian, that the Christian becomes Christ. They, I'm quoting here, they will be spiritually vivified by their union with the archetype of these true things, and so become living images of Christ or rather become one with him through grace. Rather than being a mere simulacrum, or even perhaps become the Lord himself, if such an idea is too not, not too onerous to bear. He knows, he, he knows he's, he's stating stuff that could potentially insult people or, or get, raise people's hackles. The body of Christ not only accounts for the deification of the Christian, I'm not quoting here, but here I'm quoting, but is the means for cosmic deification, quote, the body of Christ is either the soul or its powers or senses or the body of each human being or the members of the body, or the commandments, or the virtues, or the inner principles of created beings, still quoting, or to put it simply and more truthfully, each and all of these things, both individually and collectively, are the body of Christ. That's an ambiguous 54. The body of Christ is the body, he's saying, of each human being. It is the virtues. Uh, it is the inner principle, I guess, the logoi of created beings. And this is the thing that Jordan Wood is doing. I just think Wood is right. I, you know, if you read a little of Maximus, I think that this full identity that uh, he's doing, in other words, he's not in any way making this a, a metaphor. He says, everything is his body. There is a complete identification. But Maximus is careful to stipulate this is not an identity in essence. In other words, he does distinguish between God and man. This is a quote. The whole man wholly pervading the whole God and becoming everything that God is, 
without, however, identity in essence, and receiving the whole of God instead of himself, and obtaining as a kind of prize for his ascent to God, the absolutely unique God. So there's full identity, but it's not an identity of essence, but it's a reception, you know, of the person of God. Is there an analogy? And the one I'm thinking of is marriage. And the, the talk in the New Testament about marriage between the Christ and the church and the general concept of one flesh, because uh, this triggered, this kind of was triggered tonight uh, or this evening. I was listening to uh, some music and the title of the song was two hearts beating as one. And I was like, that's impossible. <laughs> God, just, you know, you were listening mind. to Phil Collins. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was Bono, you uh, too. Oh. So oh, okay. one, one of the old songs, his, uh, his, um, yeah, one, his, his memoir came out today. No, there's an old one, like from one of the old, old, you know, hits you know, from the eighties. Uh, it's, it's on his uh, list of 40 songs that, came out he came out with a memoir today so i was listening to this song list and it's one of the old songs i don't know very well but it was two hearts beat as one i was like i love bono but i was like that's impossible and then but in the context of our conversation i'm thinking you know there is a um rhythm that two hearts can find and i guess you're you're metaphorically talking about at this point with marriage or relationship or um even like sexual union two people become one flesh and maybe two hearts can beat as one is and so it becomes something else and i'm just wondering if there's a if there's an analogy in there somewhere as i say it you know what are you saying nope it's different from that he's not talking about that kind of union i think that's what we would be more comfortable with okay if we could say well you know he's not saying this literally i'm assuming this is what thomas aquinas would do. And that is that we would talk about uh, analogy, and by analogy, we would explain analogy through some sort of Greek notion of participation. I think that what Maximus is doing, and Maximus is well aware of it, and he will use the word participation, but I think he's, I think he means what he says, that we become the body of Christ, the body of Christ is us without analogy. And the only qualification is that there is a difference in the essence. The that better analogy may be Atman is Brahman. Well, the problem with Atman is Brahman, and I, I want to hear from you, Matt, on, on David Bentley Hart. Uh, I would assume this is what he's using. I, I think that Maximus is, is describing a difference in nature that one becomes God, one it, through theosis or deification. I don't know that that's there in Atman is Brahma. Right, and, that, like there, and we need the Christian distinction that uh, we become by grace what Christ is by nature. That's it. But when Maximus uses the word grace, he's using it in a strong sense. And Matt Von Schuch, you you know this, you said it well that we become through position, you know, what he is by nature. 
That is, he really means that, that by the grace of God, I, even in saying it, I want to, in some way, I want to mitigate it. But I, in mitigating it or softening it, I don't think I'm being true to Maximus. He does use the language of participation, but I think he means it the, uh, even, even stronger than that. And I, this is the main thing I'm unfolding here. Uh, so Maximus, I'm claiming, is building on Origen's notion that the begin. I think that's actually Maximus Hull's project. This sounds so much, it feels so much like Origen. But I think he's building on Origen's notion, the beginning is in the end, the end is in the beginning. And of course, by that, he means Jesus Christ. And so he describes, he's actually describing the virtuous person, and he employs Origen's formula here. For such a person freely and unfeignedly chooses to cultivate the natural seed of the good and has shown the end to be the same as the beginning and the beginning to be the same as the end, or rather that the beginning and the end are one and the same. That's origin, but that's Maximus. That's, that's 721, the ambiguous. He explains this from, I, I think he's looking at the viewpoint of the eternity, that the virtuous person, by conforming to this beginning, a beginning in which he received being and participation in what is naturally good, he hastens to the end diligently. This end is the deification of all things. In other words, what happened to Christ is cosmic in proportion. In this way, the grace that divinizes all things will manifestly appear to have been realized. He is all in all. And so, as with origin, it is the incarnate Christ that we're talking about. It's the historical Jesus. It's not a, you know, when we, if we're talking about a pre-existent Christ or a pre-existent logos, I think this is where people sneak in a Greek metaphysic, and that's precisely what neither one of them are doing. He locates the beginning of all things in the incarnate Word. In the beginning was the Word. What Word? The Gospel. That is the story of Jesus that we have in the middle of history. That's the Word. It's not some mysterious Word. God has identified with the world in Christ, and the world's beginning and end is to be found in taking up, I think, the word apocatastasis. We take up this identity of the word, and he refers to the Gospel of John in talking about this, That, and he's actually, I think, describing a continuation of creation through the Son, and this is the work of deification. Here's the quote. In this way, the grace that divinizes all things will manifestly appear to have been realized. The grace of which God the Word, becoming man, says, My Father is still working just as I am working. That is, the Father bestows his good pleasure on the work. The Son carries it out, and the Holy Spirit essentially completes it in all things, the goodwill of the former and the work of the latter, so that the one God in Trinity might be through all things and in all things. What's God doing? 
the Trinity is involved in this work of deification, of apocatastasis, that is the work of creation. So the Trinitarian work begun through the Son, you know, he is the beginning, is carried out on all creation so that he might be all in all. He states this in Ambiguous 31. This is a fairly long quote. If then Christ as man is the first fruits of our nature in relation to God, the Father, and a kind of yeast that leavens the whole mass of humanity, so that in the idea of his humanity, he is, he is with God the Father, for he is the Word, who never at any time ceased from, from or gone outside of his remaining in the Father. Let us not doubt that consistent with his prayer to the Father, we shall one day be where he is now, the fruits, the first fruits of our race. For inasmuch as he came to be below for our sakes and without change became man, exactly like us, but without sin, loosing the laws of nature in a manner beyond nature. Now let me pause here a minute. That there is a stark separation in Maximus between nature and grace. But he doesn't mean this in an Augustinian sense. He means, yes, there is the natural order, and but God's grace is the, the one that is carrying out the, the, uh, the end of nature. So he says, loosening the laws of nature beyond nature, it follows that we too, thanks to him, will come to be in the world above and become gods according to him through the mystery of grace undergoing no change whatsoever in our nature. I saw a guy had written his whole dissertation on how Maximus over and against origin does away, you know, that there's this kind of absorption of the person into God. I don't think that's true. I think Maximus, in other words, he says clearly, no, our nature is preserved. It's not that we are erased as individuals. It's that we fully become the individual that we are in and through the grace of Christ. So in saying that we are Christ, that doesn't mean that we're not Brian and Jim and, you know, we're not ourselves, but we become fully who we are. At least that's my reading. And again, I hope I'm not, I don't, I, I think I'm being true to Maximus here. I think he sees what people will accuse him of. This guy just wrote his dissertation, so I guess it didn't help that Maximus. Well, what did the uh, Fifth Ec Ecumenical Council, I know it was the century before, but like that body, what did they do with Maximus? It, they didn't condemn him, and do you know why? He's after. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they made him a saint. <laughs> <laughs> after yeah, they ripped they out his through. tongue and cut off his hand, but other than that, they loved him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who the they was who did that, but that's I don't, the that was the I, emperor. Actually, it yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was the they people. I could be wrong, but I don't think it's the same they that. Did no, the same, no, but who knows? <laughs> no, it is. It, he he did get himself involved in political dispute. Uh, the what is it? The monophysite, you know, the one will or two wills, and what was it? The emperor was advocating for 
one will and and uh, Maximus goes for two wills. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong here. And the emperor just tells him, "Shut up, Maximus. We, we don't. I really don't care what you believe. Just be quiet." Thus, he is the the. But he's the, the confessor. He is the yeah. confessor. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can tell you want us to stop you if you go too far, Paul, but you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah. We, oh, and if, anybody, if anybody just wants to read uh, Maximus on love, he's got this awesome thing called, I think it's 100 chapters on, I can't remember if it's 100 centuries, it's in the Philokalia. But he's just writing on love to the monks. Wonderful. That's what this is all about, in other words. I think it is all about the movement of love. That the uh, the descent and the ascent is the movement of love, and that's why it's not Greek philosophy. I mean, that's one of the reasons it's not Greek philosophy. I I thought this reminded me of Athanasius' formula: God became man that man might become God. But Maximus is actually using this as a principle of the cosmos and explaining the logic as a kind of singular explanation. So the point. Brian is not a metaphor. It's not that God became like man or that man becomes like God, nor is it simply a Greek notion of participation. There is a complete union between God and man, and that union is complete on both sides. And this came up before in our conversation. I'm not sure if it was this class or not. You'd have to help me remember the the church in history is the extension of Christ in the world. It, it is the body. Of, we are the body of Christ in the world. And as history behaved towards Christ, history also ultimately behaves towards his church. And, it, you know, there's a, a union there. There's a oneness there. And there's a, I'm wondering if there's something in that, I guess that's back to Christ and the church uh, as an analogy, but. No, that's, uh, a, well, not as an, an, in other words, this is not an analogy for Maximus. He would say the church is Christ and yeah, Christ yeah, is the church. I'm comfortable with that. I mean, like, at least the, you know, learning what it means over time and, and stating it, it sounded right as we talked about it before. And I, maybe it was in our class on John. Yeah, actually, uh, I mean, and again, you know, you can't say this is East or West. I, I, I remember that even Dietrich Bonhoeffer is going to say the church is the continuation of the incarnation. That's very Maximian in, in its understanding. In hearing us talk about Maximus, there's a, a, a resource I wanted to let everybody know about that's interesting. And I wonder if anyone's heard of Jonathan uh, Pajot. <clears throat> he has a YouTube channel called The Symbolic World. But Maximus happens to be, he's, a, he's an icon carver. And he is, um, Jonathan is, Jonathan Pajot. Uh, he also uh, is a, obviously orthodox, but he's self-taught. And he's read all the Maximus. He's read Origin. He's read Gregory of Nyssa, Life of Moses, and lots of other works from the ancient church. And I just wanted to point him out because he, I think, since Maximus is his go-to church father, that uh, he... How do you spell his last name? P-A-G-E-A-U. He's a French-Canadian. Uh, and the, the blog post or the pad podcast you look for is called The Symbolic World. 
and he's saying things like this isn't metaphor it's something deeper something more um, so these things that you're saying sound like what i'm listening to from jonathan Peugeot, and i'm just knowing maximus is the common common thread there so yeah yeah uh, i'd be interested if anybody has heard of him i have heard i have heard of him he's a uh, popular he has a popular presence on twitter i believe he's on you know instagram and facebook and that stuff too um he works with another guy i can't remember the guy's name i think they do a podcast together they've uh, maybe his brother actually matthew um yeah is that right yes um easy name to so, forget yeah, he, i have right. matthew he's, i have matthew's book yes <laughs> a popular book the language of creation yes i give you this quote and this is he's he, Maximus does, you know, he seems to ground himself in scripture. So, you know, in the, at the point you might think this is most objectionable, but then he quotes scripture and you think, oh, well, wait a minute, this is a quote. And this is precisely why the Savior, exemplifying within himself our condition, says to the Father, yet not I, as I will, but as thou will. And this is also like St. Paul, as if he had denied himself and was no longer conscious of, of his own life said it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me he explains that he's not describing the erasure of the individual he says don't let these words disturb you for i am not implying the destruction of our power of self-determination <laughs> but rather affirming our fixed and un changeable natural disposition hmm. that is that our natural inclinations are fulfilled through the work of christ quote as there is only one soul energy that of god and those worthy of god or rather of god alone who in a manner befitting his goodness wholly inter interpenetrates all who are worthy he uses this language, you know, wood is going to identify as uh, perichoresis or perichoretic. What so number is that? That is ambiguous 712. So there, we could say there is a perichoretic or hypostatic identity exceeding Greek participation. This is another long quote. This is from Ambigua 42.5. God renewed our nature, or to put it more accurately, he made our nature new, returning it to its primordial beauty of incorruptibility through his holy flesh, taken from us and animated by a rational soul, and on which he lavishly bestowed the gift of divinization, from which it is absolutely impossible to fall. This is one of the things that Augustine accused Origen of, that he pictured an infinite number of ages in which man might fall and be saved and fall again, which it was just not true to Origen. So I'm wondering, you know, maybe Maximus is saying that to counter this understanding. It is absolutely impossible to fall being uni uh, united to God made flesh like the soul united to the body, wholly interpenetrating it an unconfused union, and by virtue of his manifestation in the flesh, 
he accepted to be hidden exactly to the same degree that he himself, for the sake of the flesh, was manifested and to all appearances seemed to go outside of his own natural hiddenness. So I think what he's describing is perichoresis, the idea of a hypostatic union, and the idea is that the, the deific state involves the whole God in the whole creature and the whole creature in the wholeness of God. He can't use stronger language to talk about identity. Whether it insults our sensibilities or not, I think that's what Maximus is saying. Wood describes his perichoretic logic, he says, as two simultaneous vertical movements, both realized horizontally, God's descent and our ascent. He says both transgress Neoplatonic participation. They make it so that the very mode and act of divinity descends into the finite mode and act of the creature, just as much as the latter ascends into divinities. There is no separation. There is just total identity. That both modes exist as one reality, and that even in this single reality, both modes perdure entirely undiminished. Neither's natural power limits the other's act. I'm basically just I'm saying there is a complete identity, and this is what he's saying over and over again. But here is the one final illustration of this. He takes this, you know, in John, John says that God is light. And then he says to people, if you walk in the darkness, that he, and talking about Christ, or that the, then you will be in the light. That is, he uses the phrase about God is light, Christ is in the light. And this is his comment. God, who is truly light, according to his essence, is present to those who walk in him through the virtues, so that they too truly become light, just as all the saints who on account of their love for God become light by participation in that which is light by essence. So too that light, that which is light by essence on account of its love for man becomes light in those who are light by participation. If therefore through virtue and knowledge we are in God as in light, God himself as light is in us who are light. For God who is light by nature is in that which is light by imitation, just as the archetype is in the image. Or rather, God the Father is light in light. That is, he is in the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not that he exists as three separate lights, but he is one in the same light according to essence, which according to its mode of existence is threefold light. So God is light, he is himself the light, and this light is in us, quoting Maximus, who are light. God is both by nature light and by imitation in the light. So, you know, talking about the, the, the descent.
this is the Jordan Woods comment. He says, there is, you know, he, he does seem to be making the typical essence by essence and by participation distinction, but then he descends or comes to be or even becomes participated light, light in a qualified or finite mode. That is, Christ is in the light. For God, who is light by nature, is in that light, in that which is light by imitation, just as the archetype is in the image. There's no difference. In other words, there is full identification between the light that is God and the light that is the archetype and the light, quote, in us. It's a claim, this is Wood, it is a claim that in the deified person, God descends and becomes the very participated mode and activity of that person, all while retaining the divine mode, unmuted and unqualified and unmediated. That's tremendous. Great sentence. Great thought. And very clear, I think, that we become the light, just as God is the light. This, I think, is true to Maximus. I think this may be offensive to Western sensibilities, where we would like to mute this a little bit. But I'm afraid in muting it, we're not going to be true to what Maximus is saying. But now that I've said it, what problems might you see in Maximus's picture? Or not, One, maybe there is no problem. A problem might be, um, are we talking about monism or union in a way that is um, not what Christianity is about? And how do you deal with multiplicity? I think Maximus, just by listening to what I have with, uh, with that other source, uh, I think Maximus fully deals with that you get multiplicity and unity at the same time, perhaps especially with theosis. Is that a potential problem? Yes. And I think, and we can say that in many different ways, or we can raise this question in many different ways. Is there a collapse between the creator and creation distinction? That would be, I I think, what people would accuse Maximus of doing. Is there a collapse even in, you know, we're, in, we're, we're actually entering a different order of reason. I think we actually entered that different order of reason with origin. If I would state it in terms of Derrida, you know, he says that identity is through difference, which reduces to sameness. That is that we create these complete total poles of difference and then that collapses, and then it, everything is the same. So it does, as you're, Brad, you're saying, that people might accuse him of a kind of monism. Is there a kind of logic here uh, that collapses in on itself? I think that would be an objection. Say that in another way, please. That everything just reduces to one thing. We lose multiplicity in unity. In my mind, it opens up so many doors. It just creates an opposite potential in my mind. This hierarchy play into it? Um, just the structure of reality and the order of the universe being a hi- hierarchy, does that maybe play into it? Because I think that's what the understanding is I have, that uh, it, with Christ being uh, incarnate, he fills the hierarchy. He's at the top of the 
he's at the very top of the the order and he's also plumbed plumbed to the bottom so he fills it with his with the story of um the what happened with the incarnation death resurrection and everything and so christ is unique and he takes up man with him and and so all becomes eventually all becomes with man's transformation theosis but yet the hierarchy remains that's the, that, and again, Brad, you're right. That's the question: Do we lose the distinctiveness of Christ? Some would accuse Maximus of that. The tapes that play in my mind hinge on guilt and grace so much. This would move that out of the center. I want to say, Kierkegaard. What, what kind of thought world did he live in? Existentialism. I think it would move in my in my experience. Guilt is such a pretty much front and center on, on most sermons. Mm-hmm. And it would move that or break that and be replaced by a continuous choice slash freedom. Okay. And, and that's the biggie here. We've entered in a, di- it, we're talking about a different economy. We're not talking about, and again, I'll use the exaggerated notion. We're not talking about a Western notion of law and transgression of the law and payment for guilt. Yep. We're talking about healing. Matt Von Schuch, the the word here, well-being, describe, run that down for us. Maximus uses that earlier in Ambiguous 7. Um, he talks about how we're moved, like we naturally begin in being. That is, we, we exist and we owe our existence to God and um, to, to the low guy as he describes it and our end and our rest is an eternal well-being and he describes that well that eternal well-being as our place of rest in god but picking up on what paul's been talking about maximus uses the same image that origin uses to describe christ and in the incarnation to describe man's end and well-being and that's the iron suffused with fire. He also uses air suffused with light to describe what well-being is and his images for what you've been talking about, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, it is, a, it is the Eastern emphasis on being made well, healing, that is so largely missing or often missing in the West. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear all the objections or any possible. I think that what we're describing is filled with potential problems, many of them, I think, which Maximus tried to address. The question is if he's successful. I I was just wondering if this this could have some trouble with regards to, you know, like the Calvinist doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Basically, once you're once you're saved, you you can't sin again, and and so you know if Maximus is describing this 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 uh, idea of theosis, does that entail permanence? You know, temporal permanence in that state, uh, and if so, how would that differ from the the uh, perseverance of the saints doctrine? Let me state your question as a problem that people have accused Maximus of. 
aren't we back in apocatastasis to a kind of determinism in which there is a relinquishing of free will? Is that? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little unclear about temporally when, you know, whether we're talking about apocatastasis sort of at the end of time in which everybody gets saved or, you know, this idea of theosis that in some sense can happen in time. But if it does happen in a temporal sense, a person undergoes theosis, then, you know, they achieve the state and stay in it, then, yeah, then that I would see the problem there being that you, they would have then lost free will because they, they couldn't sin. They, they would, would basically, you know, be, be prevented from falling away at that point. I, I think part of the issue here, and, and I may be uh, contradicting, let me say it, and then I'll say how I'm potentially contradicting myself. What is freedom? What is true freedom? Freedom is to be what we were created to be, right? That as long as we are bound by sin, there is a sense that we are not exercising the full freedom of our will. And so I don't think that apocatastasis is a removal of freedom, but it's a granting of the full potential of freedom in which we're truly free and no longer bound by the enslavement of sin. That's part one of my answer. But the potential contradiction in my answer is, yes, but haven't I just described the human condition outside of Christ as a, a kind of uh, absence of free will? Hmm. And I'm happy to have anybody help me. <laughs> isn't that what, isn't that what the, the, the claim that we're making as Christians is that outside of Christ, there really is no truly free will in the classical Christian sense. You're a slave. You, at best, you have the ability to choose between two finite goods uh, that are in some way, you know, sort of imperfections. You know, you can go to the grocery store and you can say cinnamon toast crunch or golden grams, but you can't, but you're not free apart from Christ to become who you were created to be, which is freedom. That's Christian freedom. I want to agree with you, but I think that both Origen and Maximus are defending the notion. And by the way, Augustine, see, I, I slipped back into Augustine, is, is also defending, uh, even though he's talking about predestination, they're all, everybody's wanting to maintain some order of free will. I, I sort of instinctively agree with that. And yeah, I, I mean, if it's, I, we may be wrong if it's Origen. You know, August, <laughs> we free will may need to be defended if they're all defending. <laughs> right? It must I, be good. That is yeah. that in some way we do have freedom, and I still, I, I don't think that does away with the notion of a kind of enslavement by choice. I guess another point or another thing to consider is that I don't think Maximus claims, or Origen, um, that this happens at one point in time during your life. In fact, he'll talk about how, I mean, Origen will straightforwardly talk about God as a consuming fire and that part of apocatastasis is God upon your death, burning out the evil and the sin in you um, and, and really bringing you to full knowledge of who he is and voluntarily bring you along. 
Maximus in, in Ambiguum 7, further on in, I think it's paragraph 32, talks about death and how death is used by God to teach us that we've been, we, we, the things we think are real really aren't real. Yes. So he's using, you know, these, the category of death and death itself as a way to teach us and bring us along in free will to show us what things are will. I think underlying that is understanding that we live in ignorance now or we see the shadow now, but we will see fully then. So I think that's, that's part of it as well. That, that, that makes sense to me. I think previously I was sort of thinking that, that the process of theosis was almost like achieving, you know, what the Catholic church would call like sainthood during your lifetime. And then, you know, you go, you go straight to paradise afterwards, bypassing a purgatory, whereas most others would have to go through this consuming fire if they haven't already done so. But, you know, it sounds like I'm just importing kind of Catholic notions into that, whereas Maximus may not truly believe that it's you know, completely possible to achieve apokastasis during your lifetime, but that God has to burn some parts out after death. Yeah, it was I, I like, I like uh, Matt, the thing you brought out that is just thematic, I think, that in uh, it's there in the early church fathers that we find it again in Maximus that I think we kind of lose in uh, Augustine and in the West. And that is the prime problem is death and an orientation mm -hmm. to death. And the way that I've described this, or not I, but it's there in scripture is that there is a lie in the, the Genesis that you won't die. You'll be like gods. That is that there is an orientation to death that is the deception, that is the problem of sin, that is definitive of sin. How do we enter into that deception? I've always assumed, and I, I think this is what they're describing, it's not so much a, a lie that is just thrust upon us, but it's a lie that we tell ourselves. That is, that our it's almost like our will and our choice is involved in our own enslavement and deception. Now, that's perverse. But I, I think that we're, as humans, we know about this perversity. <laughs> in other words, if you try to explain this sort of perversity to an alien, you know, somebody that has no experience of how we can deceive ourselves, I think it's a very hard thing. But I think we all know that we are quite capable of doing that of telling ourselves a lie that we ourselves believe so that we're the liar deceived by the lie that we tell. Yes. All wrapped up in a little bundle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just Romans 7 and put it a different think, way. I think so. I think so. And, and that's a sensibility that I think is there in uh, the, the lesson, you know, what is being taught. And I think if you ask the big question of origin, you know, well, we are being taught something, that this is a kind of, we're growing, it's a growth process. Uh, and that's kind of the, that is the purpose of apocalypse, that is, that, we're, that it is a process of growth. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.